Let's pray. God, I thank You for this morning. I thank You, Lord, for this time that we could just set apart out of our schedules and just focus on You. Lord, I pray that this morning You just supernaturally take any distractions out of our hearts, out of our minds. I pray, Lord, that we're able to focus in these minutes together on Your truth for us, on Your Word, and we know Your Word is true. So God, I just pray that, again, as I speak, I'm led by Your Spirit, that He'll direct me and guide me. I'll stay in tune with Your Word. And Lord, help us this morning as, as we hear the Gospel proclaimed. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here that needs joy, I pray the Holy Spirit will comfort them and give them joy. <clears throat> if there's anybody here this morning that needs conviction, Lord, I pray that through the power of the Spirit, they're convicted of their sin and they draw closer to You and confess it to You. So Lord, we love You and we thank You for Your Word and I thank You for this opportunity to preach it. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. Well, once again, good morning. I'm excited to be here and to, to, to preach. And if you have your Bibles, make your way back to the Gospel of John. We have been in this series since last spring, but we took quite a few months off. And as I was just studying and reading and, and just meditating on John this past week, it felt like I was visiting an old friend again. Um, so I'm excited to, to preach and go back into the Gospel of John. So a little bit of a recap of where we've been at. So we're actually up to John chapter 6, if you want to make your way there. Here's a little bit of a recap of what we're doing through this sermon series. We're going line by line, verse by verse, looking at John's gospel, and we're asking a twofold question. One, who is Jesus? Right? What do we learn about Jesus Christ? And the second is, why does it matter? Right? That second question is important. Why does it matter? So in John chapter 1, I'm going to give you a brief recap. Trust me, I'm not going to be very long. In John chapter 1, we learned and we were reminded that Jesus is the eternal God. We have to believe that. If we believe anything less than that, Jesus is not a Savior that can save us. So Jesus is eternal God, as John the Baptist proclaims, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the long-awaited-for promised Messiah of the people of Israel. In John chapter 2, Jesus does his first miracle. He turns water into wine. In John chapter 3, Jesus reveals the necessity, the importance that you have to be, I'll stress it again, you have to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. And he talks to a Pharisee named Nicodemus about that. And Nicodemus' response, which probably would be most of ours, is, what does that mean? Right, so we talked about what that meant. And that's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 4, Jesus reveals himself for the very first time publicly as the Messiah to not anyone important, not someone special, but divinely there was an appointment with a Samaritan outcast woman at the well, a sinner. And through that, a whole town is transformed and they worship him. Later in that chapter, Jesus heals an official son by speaking it over a distance, over 15 miles away. He just speaks the word and the man's son is healed. That's the second miracle in John's Gospel. In John chapter 5, Jesus does another, a third miracle. He heals a lame man who's been lame his whole life at the pool on the Sabbath day. And by doing that, he claims equality to be God. In John chapter 5, Jesus sets up this whole thing of, I do as the Father does. As the Father gives life, I give life. And he has these whole things about how him and the Father are one. He's making a statement, and the Pharisees know what he's saying. In John chapter 6, 
where we left off in the middle of summer, Jesus does his fourth miracle. In John's Gospel, he has seven recorded miracles of Jesus. It's the Gospel that has the least amount of miracles of Jesus, but each one is there for a reason, and it's important. Jesus, in John chapter 6, he multiplies the bread and the fish to feed the crowd of over 5,000 people. We know that there are 5,000 men, but that doesn't include their wives and their children. And at the end of that miracle, this is what we read, that the people want to make Jesus their king. It says that Jesus perceived their hearts and knew they were going to take him by force and make Jesus the king that they wanted him to be. So that's a little bit of a recap of where we've been at. And again, who is Jesus? We have seen the power of Jesus, and more specifically, his power to create, his power over sickness, his power over creation. He has authority over all of these because simply he is God. And that's what John has been arguing and has been pointing to in his gospel. And why does that matter? It matters because Jesus claims to give life. He claims to give life to all those who believe. In John chapter 1, in John chapter 3, in John chapter 5, that phrase is, it, it, it comes up over and over to give life. And according to the gospel, how do we get eternal life? Spoiler alert, it's nothing that you can do. It's not good works. If it was, we'd all be in trouble. How do we get eternal life? According to Jesus, He gives it. Later in the Gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, nobody comes to the Father except through Me. That's what Jesus says. So He's our Lord, our Savior, our God, the Savior of the world. So we're going to keep those two questions, right? Who is Jesus? Why does it matter? As we continue through John's Gospel, So hopefully you're there already, but John chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 15. And that's the verse that is going to transition us into this next miracle of Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now again, I'll, I'll pause there for just a moment. What did he just do? He just supernaturally and miraculously have fed a crowd. He multiplied the food. And because of that, the people, like I said mentioned before, the people want to take Jesus and make, them, make him their king, which sounds great. Right? It'd be like, what a perfect time. Yes, Jesus is the king of kings. However, they wanted to do it their way. And Jesus' first mission, his first mission when he came to earth, right, as, as the, the, the God eternal, the word of God dwelt among us, It was to not be the conquering king. That's his next return. It was to be what? The sacrificial lamb. His mission was always the cross. And what these groups of Jewish people wanted to do, they wanted to take Jesus and march into Jerusalem and defeat the Romans, get them out of there, because Jesus, their Messiah, will be with them and always give them food and provide for them and they'll never have to work again because their king has their back. They were almost right. However, They wanted to make him by force and make him king. And because of that, Jesus, can we just look at Jesus' humility? If someone came to me with a crowd of people and said, David, we want to make you our king, I'd be like, my first thought would be, wow, okay, thank you. That's a lot of power given to me. Just notice the humility of Jesus. He never forsakes or forgets the cross. He knew that his mission was not to be the conquering king of the physical world. But it was the cross, the conquering king of sin and darkness by dying on the cross. Let's keep going. 
Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So right here, what we just read was Jesus' fifth miracle that John records in his Gospel. And if you have your notes, point number one, this miracle that Jesus has just done is a private miracle. Now, I don't mean he did it in his closet with no one around to see, but it wasn't in front of a crowd. It wasn't among thousands of people, but rather it was in front of his disciples. This miracle is also recorded in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel. And continuing in letter A of your notes, we see a rough night. A rough night. I'll read verse 16 again. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. So where are they? They're going across the Sea of Galilee. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing and they had rowed about three or four miles. I tried to do a little bit of research to understand weather. I don't. I don't get it. I feel like even the weathermen, they try to predict weather, they still don't understand it fully. But here's what I know about my limited research. The Sea of Galilee is known for having these extreme and rough, windy storms out of nowhere. It's the lowest freshwater lake in the world, or, and it's actually the second lowest overall. And it's also surrounded by mountains. So, again, the pressure systems, I don't know how that works. I, I read it for about five, ten minutes, and I was lost, and I'm like, I'm not spending more time on this. This is what I know. Because of the location of the Sea of Galilee and the height difference between the lake and the mountains, sudden windstorms are common. When winds come from especially the east, they get these monstrous storms, these storms that are great. From the other gospel accounts, both Matthew and Mark, we get a bigger picture because they include other details that John leaves out. They get another side of the story that Jesus dismissed the crowd from him. So what Jesus did after the miracle, he, he dispersed the crowd, he sent them away, and he also sent his disciples to go on without him. He separates himself to be alone in isolation. And it was evening and it was already dark and the disciples are already in the Sea of Galilee. They have been rowing for three, or, or I shouldn't say three or four hours, for hours and hours. And they only made it three or four miles. Both Matthew and Mark mentioned that they were far off from land and that it was the fourth watch. And a little research, fourth watch, in, in their time, they, they counted the, the nights in different watches. So first watch would be 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., that's number one. Second watch was 9 p.m. to midnight, that's two. The third watch is midnight to three. The last is 3 a.m., to 6 a.m. So what we know is the fourth watch when Jesus comes to them. They started the sail when it was dark, and we know it's 3 or 6 in the morning in between that fourth watch period, and they were still rowing against the wind. I don't know how many of you have ever tried to canoe or paddle or kayak against the wind or, or against waves that are rough. I'll give a little bit of a story here. Stephanie and I were on our honeymoon, and we went to an, uh, a, a bed and breakfast in Maine, 
And it was special because this bed and breakfast shared the same lake or this big pond as her great aunt's house did. Her great aunt doesn't own that house. We couldn't go on the property. So when we got there for one day, we were only there, Stephanie said, I want to go on the lake. I want to canoe. I want to go to the shore and just see where I hung out and see where I, I played as a kid. I want to go down memory lane. The only problem was the day we got there was like 50 degrees. The sun was nowhere to be found. It was windy. And this pond, there were white tops on the waves. And what does that mean? It means there's waves. And we took a canoe. Now listen, canoes, are, they're hard enough. On a, on a still seat, they're, they're hard enough. But we took a canoe, and you know, I'm trying to be a good husband. Or we were just married. Of course, yeah, we'll do it. And I'm like, oh, this isn't going to work out well. <laughs> so with canoes, if there's two people, the person in the front does most of the power. The person in the back does most of the steering. So we get in the canoe, and we're going, and it's rough, and it's, it's minutes, it's minutes, and I'm like, oh, what is going, why, why is this so hard? Like, I know I'm not that weak. And I turn around, and the person that's supposed to be steering me is like this, taking pictures. <laughs> and I said, Steph, what are you doing? Like, I'm going in a circle. I'm like, that's why? <laughs> a little different, but I could relate a little bit to the, to the disciples. Not hours and hours, but enough where I was like, all right, canoeing in the wind against the waves, it's not fun. And especially if you don't have someone steering you either. She claims, in her defense, she claims she told me, maybe I didn't hear over the roaring 50-mile-an-hour winds. I'm exaggerating a little bit. But after a long day, a long day of serving, Initially, the disciples were going to be on a sabbatical with Jesus. He took them away from the crowds to retreat. They were just on a mission. And then the crowd followed Jesus. Jesus fed the crowd. He preached to the crowd. He healed the crowd. He told his disciples to help feed the crowd. It was a long, interrupted sabbatical for the disciples. A long day, and now it's an even longer night. They're rowing against the wind and waves, not making much progress. The disciples, the Bible doesn't say it, but let's be honest, they're human. They're most likely physically exhausted, discouraged, maybe even felt a little bit defeated. They might have been thinking, maybe, I don't know for sure, but, but maybe, Jesus, where are you? Jesus, why did you send us away? Where are you? And I want to say this, as I was studying and just praying in this text, in the darkest part of the night, Jesus comes to them. In the darkest part of the night, Jesus comes to them doing the impossible. Let her be in your nose. Jesus walks on water. That's the miracle. Out of the distance, the disciples see somebody walking on rough waters. It's Jesus. And in this moment, as we read this, we see the absolute authority, the absolute power that Jesus has over nature and the laws of nature. In His miracle, Jesus temporarily suspends the law of gravity to walk across the water. Sometimes I just think about these stories as like, oh, these are nice little cute stories. Just think about that. If you want to, find a pencil in the pew or a pew card or something and just hold it in your hand. You don't have to do this, but if you want to, we can do it together. I'll find something. Hold it in your hand. I'm going to count down from three. We're going to drop it on one. Three, two, one. Did anybody... Thing? Was, it, was it floating? If, that's a miracle if it is, but no. But a hundred times out of a hundred times, gravity does its job. That's a law of nature. We see Jesus. What does he say? No. 
gravity's not going to affect me. I'm going to overpower, and gravity's going to listen to me. If we consider the other gospel accounts, according to Matthew and Mark, we see four miracles total in just this one little section. The first that they all record is Jesus walks on water. The second is Peter walks out on water towards Jesus. Remember the story where Peter walks out and he starts to sink because he takes his eyes off Jesus? Most people preach that sermon about fixing your eyes on Jesus. This is the same scenario. It's the same story. So Peter also, at Jesus' command, walks towards him and does walk on water for a little bit. The third miracle is that as soon as Jesus entered the boat with his disciples, the wind ceased. The wind stopped. Now you could say coincidence. I doubt it. I doubt it. And the fourth one, which John records, and, and this is a little bit of, a, of, of, of some dispute here, but their boat immediately arrived at the land in verse 21. It says, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now some people have said, well, maybe that's not a miracle. Maybe it's when you're in the presence of Jesus, time just stands still, and you're with him, and he gets you through it together, and just feels like, like, like no time at all. Others do think that it was a legitimate miracle that Jesus, or it's not out of the ordinary, he just walked on water. Why couldn't he do that? The way John writes it, it seemingly looks like another miracle. But like this, like this miracle, and like the last miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, some skeptics have tried to reconcile that these aren't miracles, that these were not supernatural things, that they can explain away these miracles. They've argued that Jesus really didn't walk on the water, but rather he was just walking along the shoreline, and because the, the disciples were tired and it was late and it was dark, they got confused, and it just looked like Jesus was walking on the water. Or somehow these skeptics think, no, Jesus can't walk on water, but then they believe that three days later he died and rose again. I'm like, that doesn't make sense logically. Here's the issue with that. Matthew's account says that they were a long way from land. John says they were about three or four miles out. In Matthew, we read that Peter actually walks on water towards Jesus. So if Jesus was on the shore and he didn't walk on water, then somehow Peter's the special one and he walked on water. That doesn't make sense to me. In each gospel account, we also read that Jesus actually walked into the boat with them. He went to them. Let me say this. Jesus, by walking on water... He supernaturally and miraculously puts his sovereignty on full display for, the, for his disciples. The disciples were helpless. They were overpowered. They were defeated. They were subject to the wind and the waves and the dark. They were affected by it. They couldn't do anything about it. Jesus, on the other hand, was in complete control over it. Complete power over nature. And there's something interesting that Mark adds in his account. He says this, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on land. So that's Jesus on the land, the disciples are on the sea. And he saw them, that they were making a headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch, right, that's how we get the time, 3 to 6 a.m., the fourth watch of night came to them. He was walking on the sea. Now, I don't know if you noticed that, even though Jesus was not physically with his disciples, Mark says that he saw them. He saw them struggling. He saw them, in, I think in the King James Version, it says they're toiling. They were tormented, 
over and over, tormented by the winds and the waves. They're making very little progress. Some have speculated that because Jesus was high up on the mountaintop, or that He was high and they were in the sea, that somehow He could see them from four miles away in the dark, physically on the rough sea. But I'd argue here that we see another glimpse of Jesus' divinity. Being God, Jesus knew. He saw supernaturally. He sees His disciples and knows the trouble that they're facing. We saw this take place in John chapter 1 with the calling of, I believe it was Philip, where Jesus says, before, before you were called, I saw you under the fig tree. I might have been Nathaniel. I think I'm getting confused. But again, that same supernatural sight, that miraculous sight that he knows, he sees. And here's a little bit of truth for us, encouragement. Even in our darkest times, God sees us and God is with us. Even in our darkest times, God is with us and he sees us. God's word in his word, he promises that he'll never leave, he'll never abandon us. That means even when we can't see it, it doesn't mean God's not working. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean God's forgotten about us. When we feel overwhelmed by trials, by storms in our life, we can cry out to our God, cry out to our Savior for help, and know that He hears us. He comforts us. In 1 Peter chapter 5, if you, if you want to turn there, you can. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Or 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Peter writes this, Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, let me say that again, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then Peter ends this with praise. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. What do we see there? We see a God who cares. A God who says what? Give me your anxieties. Give me your burdens. They're not too much. I want them. We're commanded to give them to Him. Why? Because He cares for us. And we see that even in our suffering, some people think when you become a Christian, life is perfect. Somehow you're in this, this supernatural bubble and, hey, I'm never going to have any storms in life. I'm, I'm, look, I'm so good. I'm so safe. I'm no problems ever again. We don't read that anywhere in the Bible. We do read that God is with us through the storms. So it's not if we go through storms, but when we go through storms. In Hebrews 13, the author says, keep your life free of the love of money and be content with what you have. That's a little bit, you know, not much what we're talking about, but, but here's what I want to get at. For he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So then we can say confidently, boldly, confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Again, when we find ourselves in storms, when we find ourselves surrounded by darkness, we hold fast to the promises of God, knowing that He loves us, that He cares for us, He comforts us, He helps us. 
Satan loves to try to make you forget that. Satan likes to make you think you're all alone. That God's forgotten about you. He hasn't. That's a lie. Psalm 46, I had Keith read it, just the verse 1 of that. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. A very present help in trouble. Do we believe that? Don't answer out loud, but just think, do, do we believe that? When we go through trials, do we live that out? Do we believe that? Again, someone here might need me to say this again and be clear. Even in our darkest times, God is with us. Amen. Now getting back to the text, point two, we're going to see the disciples' response to Jesus. Verse 19 of John chapter 6. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. And Jesus said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Letter A, we see that their initial response was fear. Initially, they were afraid. Why? Because it's not normal to be in the middle of the lake, to be in the middle of the sea, and see someone walking towards you. I don't care how brave you are, we would all be afraid of that image. Both Matthew and Mark add that they were terrified and they thought it was a ghost. They thought it was a spirit. Just imagine, right, the disciples, you've been, you've been up all night, you've been fighting against the windstorm, fighting against the waves, your arms are probably on fire, you might be hungry, you're definitely tired, you're frustrated, you might be wet because the water keeps getting in the boat and you have to bail it out over and over again. You're not making much progress forward and now there's a ghost coming towards you. I think I'd be terrified too. Let's be honest. I think we'd all be terrified. I'd be like, are you serious? It's been hours and we're, I'm trying not to drown and now we're going to die from a ghost? Like That's where my mind went when I was reading that. Right? But notice Jesus' response. He says, it is I. Matthew and Mark say, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus' first words to his disciples are comfort. Their comfort, their reassurance. He calls out to them identifying who He is. And there's something very interesting in this phrase where He says, it is I. It literally translates to ego emi. Now that might sound familiar. Last year we spent a, a seven weeks, eight weeks, going through the I am statements of Jesus found in John. And in each structure, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd. What he's actually referring to is ego emi, I am, I am, which points back to the name of God, Yahweh, in Exodus chapter 3. So when people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, in all those I am statements, he's clearly laying out, I am, I am the bread of life. I am God. And it's interesting. I was listening to R.C. Sproul. He said, this one should really be included in that list. It's the same format. It is I, the I am, the great I am, Yahweh, God, with you. Again, the disciples are full of fear. And they hear, take heart. It is I am, do not be afraid. And after hearing Jesus' voice, seeing that it's Jesus, their master, we see their true response. We see their rightful response, letter B. 
It's joy in worship. It's joy in worship. Verse 21 of John's Gospel says, Then they were glad to take him into the boat. Matthew adds that they worshipped him. No longer were they physically alone, physically without Jesus, but now Jesus, their master, Jesus, their savior, is with them. At the moment he enters the boat, again, as I mentioned, the wind stops. The wind ceases. And at that moment is when Matthew records that they worshipped him. And this is what they said, truly you are the Son of God. I'm arguing that is the accurate, biblical, right response of of the right followers of Jesus, his disciples. You are the Son of God. The disciples' response here is correct. They give him praise and worship. They rejoice in his presence. They're reunited with their master. Notice what they didn't say. My mind went here, so I'll share it. Notice what they didn't say. Uh, Jesus, where were you six hours ago? Where, where were you? I'm soaking wet. Why, how come you get to walk on water and stay dry? And, and we had to fight the wind and the waves. Why weren't you with us? They didn't say that. Why? Seeing the power of Jesus on display caused them to worship him. Their attention was not on what they went through, but rather who was with them. Jesus, the Son of God. When we go through hard times in our lives, how do we respond? Just think about that. We see how the disciples respond. How do we? Sometimes I wallow in my pain and suffering. Sometimes I want people to see how sad I am. Oh, David, how, oh, come here. We, you know, I'll comfort you. Oh, you poor baby. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but do we wallow in our pain? Do we wallow in our sadness? Do we have anger towards God? Do we feel bitter towards God? Do we isolate ourselves and try to power through it on our own? Maybe you think, well, I don't want to bother God with this. He's too big for my problem. Or maybe you think the other way, my problem's too big for God. I I don't know if he can really handle this. I'll try it on my own first. As Christians, and we spoke about this a few weeks ago, Our first response should be prayer. Our first response should be prayer. Our circumstances, what we're going through in life, does not dictate or change the amount of glory that's due to God. What do I mean? If you're in a storm, if you're surrounded by darkness, if your life is tough and it's the hardest week of your life, God is still holy and worthy of all glory due to him. On the flip side, if you're on a spiritual mountaintop and you had the best week of your life, guess what? God is holy, still worthy of glory. There's an older song by Casting Crowns. It's called, I'll Praise You in the Storm. Most of us have probably heard it before. The, the, the first half of the chorus goes like this, and I'll praise you in this storm, and I will lift my hands. What is that? An imagery of surrender, an imagery of, of worship. For you are who you are, God, no matter where I am. Our circumstances, if we're in a storm, no matter how dark it is for us, God doesn't change. God still is worth the glory due to him through that. I'll be honest, we need to train our hearts. We have to train our minds to respond with gladness and joy in who God is, even despite our circumstances. That's hard. It does require a training. It does require us to to try to think about some things. And, And here's what I mean. How do we do this? What are some practical ways that we can get better at responding to worshiping God even through hard times? I'll say number one, memorize Scripture. 
I'm not just saying that because every pastor is supposed to say that and every Christian is supposed to have... No, but memorize Scripture. Here's why. When you're going through a dark time, right, your mind's going to be filled with the truths, with the promises, with the love of who God is. You're reminded, almost like a habit, right? Your, your mind starts to click into place. Okay, it doesn't make sense, but what I do know is God is good. What I do know is He loves me. What I do know is He's with me. I think a lot of us in our life have memorized Psalm 23. Some of us might have a magnet on our fridge, a coffee mug, maybe a little picture frame hanging up in the living room or in your bathroom, right? It's, it's everywhere in the world. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they what? They comfort me. So when you're going through that hard time in your life, when you're getting attacked, whether it's a spiritual attack or just physically or emotional, something's going wrong. You remember Scripture, your mind goes there and brings you to it. Right? If you memorize it, flood your, your heart and your mind with God's truth. Let me just say this. Seeing things affects us. Watching things, thinking about things affects us. There's a TV show I watch. It's a, like a, a, a criminal, uh, like, uh, a police show and it was just getting darker and darker and I was like ah and I started thinking about things it was affecting my thoughts I'd be up at night and I'd be like okay if someone breaks in okay what am I going to do I barricade I'm going to lock all the doors okay but, and I'm like I got to get this out of my head it's not good for me right fill it with good godly things why so when you don't know where else to go it'll click it's that habit you train your mind memorize scripture if you want to turn there really quickly, Psalm chapter 10. Psalm chapter 10. We have the author. We have the psalmist crying out to God. He cries out to God. Psalm, Psalm 10 verse 1. Why, O Lord, you stand far away? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? The author of the psalm is saying, God, where are you? Where are you? Death is at my door. What, are you still there? If you flip to the end of that psalm, what does he do? He gives glory back to God. Why? Because he knows his God. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nation shall perish from his land. What does he do? He doesn't wallow in his pain. He doesn't wallow in his suffering. But what does he say? God, despite all that, I'm pouring my heart out to you. And yes, you could be honest and be real to God because he knows already. But end it with praise. No matter what I'm going through, God, help me. I know, I know you're there. I know you're the King of kings. I know you're the creator of all. Memorize Scripture. The second is this. Remember Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 4, from the New Living Translation, I love the way it puts it. It says, Jesus understands our weaknesses. For He faced all the same testings we do, yet He did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, there we will receive His mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. We'll find grace when we need it the most. When we're going through hard times, remember Jesus. Some theologians and some people think that God has somehow created the world and then he, what did He do? He took a step away. He's like, okay, uh, have at it. I'm going to be over here and I'll do something over on this side of the universe. And they think that God is like a, like a watchmaker. He wound up time and he left and went away. The Bible doesn't say that. It says God is with us 
And that Jesus, Jesus knows what we go through. Why? Because He's experienced it. He's experienced humanity. He was fully God, yet fully human. The incarnation, the mystery. And through that, we can look to Jesus. We have a Savior who knows what it feels like when someone betrays us. We know what it, he knows what it feels like when, when we get disappointed. When we feel joyful. When we feel pain. He experienced it. Remember Jesus. God pursued us. Jesus came to us. He tabernacled. He dwelt among us. The third is this. Look to the cross. This is the last just bit of advice. Look to the cross. There's a big cross behind me. At the cross, we're reminded about how much God loves us. That Jesus Christ paid the death penalty for our sins. He bore the wrath of God that's due for us. At the cross, we see the perfect love of God. We see God's perfect justice and wrath. What? Reconciled in Jesus Christ's death on the cross. When we go through trials and storms, we look to the cross as a reminder of the hope and the peace and the love that's given to all who believe in Jesus. And let me just say this. Why is it important that Jesus died on the cross? Because we can't save ourselves. Some people think that there's this grand cosmic scale that when we die, we stand before God in heaven and He's going to weigh our good deeds and our bad deeds and, and somehow we just live through life and we're like, please, I really just hope I had enough good before the Lord that the, the scale will shift in my favor and he'll, he'll let me into heaven. That's not in the Bible. The Bible actually says all our good deeds, everything good that we think that we have before the Lord without the blood of Jesus and His righteousness and His death are dirty, vile, disgusting before God. Now what does that mean? It means we're helpless. It means there's nothing we can do. But as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, salvation, eternal life, is a gift from God. As Jesus will say, and John will keep saying, for all who believe in the name of Jesus. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. So we have to remember, even as we share the Gospel, it's not about good works. It's not about being good enough. But rather, it's that we're not good enough. And why? Because Jesus had to come. He had to pay the penalty for our sin. Paul tells us in Romans, the penalty, the wage, what it costs to sin is death. And if we are in Christ, right, we believe Jesus paid that penalty for us. It's His grace alone that we're saved through Jesus alone. So who is Jesus? He's the creator of all. He's the one who's powerful, the one who has power over nature, the one who does miraculous things, the Savior of the world, the Son of God. Why does that matter? Because if He is our Savior, and if He is who He says He is, then we have eternal life for all who call on the name of the Lord. As we share the Gospel, as we're encouraged this week to go out I want to encourage us, we don't save souls. We don't. We're commanded to go out and tell the good news, but God's the one that saves. God's the one that does the work. So as Christians, we have to be obedient, share the gospel, live out the gospel. Love the Lord and love others. And through that, lead others to the cross. Lead others to the truth of the gospel that Jesus died on the cross. All who believe in Him will be saved. As we just read this fifth miracle of Jesus, we saw how the disciples responded. And I would say they responded as a true 
follower of Jesus would. They worshipped him. Next week, we're going to look at that remaining crowd. As I mentioned, Jesus dispersed the crowd. He goes away from the crowd. The next day, there's a remnant of the crowd that's still looking for Jesus. And they actually go across and they find Jesus. But we're going to see how they respond to Jesus and how it differs from the disciples. So that'll be in actually two weeks. Let's pray. God, we just praise you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement and the joy that's found in it. Thank you for the beautiful reminder, God, that you are with us even when we don't see you, you see us. Even when it feels like nothing's, or you're not working, you're working. God, help us to remember what your word says, that you will comfort us, that we can boldly go to you, boldly give you our, our anxieties because you care for us. We can receive grace and mercy and comfort from you. God, I pray that you're able, just through the power of the Holy Spirit, to change our hearts this morning to want to memorize your word. To not just do it because oh, that's what good Christians are supposed to do, but to do it because we want to. Because it will affect how we think and how we act through trials and storms. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that can relate to what David said in Psalm 23. They're in the valley of the shadow of death. God, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit will bring them comfort. Bring them the peace that's beyond all understanding. The supernatural peace that only you give us. Lord, I pray that even as we go out and go back to work or school, or just life this week, I pray that we're encouraged about the cross. That we have a God who pursued us, a God who loves us, a God who died for us who took the death penalty for us. I pray for the, for the power and the boldness to live the gospel and to preach the gospel every day. Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.